Hello and welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Dunn, and in this episode, our third episode, I speak with Sinead McSherry, head women's soccer coach at St. Lawrence University. Sinead is entering her second season, and in this conversation, she talks about inheriting a successful program and developing a culture that sustains that success. On a personal note, I want to thank all of you who've checked out the first two episodes of the Performance Rising Podcast. I think it's really cool that you dig this topic and want to hear more, and I hope to give you what you want in the form of a really enjoyable podcast. With that being said, uh, I will be making changes to both content and format in the very near future to make it more listenable. The first six episodes were recorded back to back, and accordingly, my learning curve on those first six episodes was very steep. I continue to work on format and interview style, as well as audio recording, which is the bane of my existence. Special shout out to my uh, dear cousin and uh, announcer extraordinaire, Christopher Schmidt, who's given me a lot of great tips about improving the uh, interview process, and I really thank him for that. A couple other things, Uh, we will not just be talking to soccer coaches. I originally reached out to a lot of soccer coaches because that's the world I came from, and uh, I knew a lot of people in that community. But I have, as you will see, uh, talked to uh, a lot of people outside of that arena and will continue to do so. I'm very passionate about bringing in diverse perspectives on all meanings of that term, and I look forward to sharing that with you. Another thing is you will start hearing my voice more. I've been kind of sitting back and uh, grasping at the questions I've wanted to ask. Uh, Instead of letting the conversation flow, I identify that, and I will be making changes to kind of put me more front and center in that conversation. And last but not least, I mentioned it earlier, but audio issues will continue to improve. I really appreciate your patience. It's been a bit of a nightmare and a steep learning curve, as I mentioned, but uh, I think we're getting a handle on everything and I'm hoping to to give you a far more enjoyable experience uh, with clear audio and uh, better content. So thanks again. I hope you enjoy episode three. Here we go. Sinead, hello and welcome. Hello, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too. Sinead, for our listeners, why don't you give a brief introduction? Um, my name's Sinead McSherry. I'm currently the head women's soccer coach at St. Lawrence University uh, up in upstate New York. I've been in this position for about a year and a half and I'm also my team's strength and conditioning coach and um, that's the bulk of what I do uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, I also coach youth soccer in my spare time when I have a chance to and do some personal training and individual work. And if you can tell from her accent, she's not from around these parts. So Sinead, where are you from? Uh, despite everybody's guess, I'm not from Australia. I'm from England, born and bred in London. Um, grew up with Irish parents, so definitely confuse a lot of people. But yeah, from overseas. So I like to start these podcasts with uh, with the parents and the community you grew up with, uh, because I think that's where we find out and start to learn uh, explicitly or implicitly what culture is. 
So if you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit about your parents and tell me about the community you grew up in. Yeah, um, so my parents met when they were 21, um, waiting and waitressing at a pub um, in London, and my mother moved over from Ireland at a pretty young age. They both finished high school, but um, in England, you finish high school at 16, and so they didn't pursue anything beyond that. My mom was one of nine, grew up on a farm in Galway, west of Ireland, and really up until my generation of, of cousins, um, college was kind of unheard of. So um, out to the working world, her and my and my dad went, and that's where they met. And so growing up in London, we moved around a lot. My dad owned a few different pubs, was pretty good at his job, and moved down to southeast London, which is kind of where the bulk of um, my experience with either playing or, or coaching began. Um, and, you know, from there on, it was just you know, picked up any type of job that they could. I think it was the 88 recession, if I'm right. I can't remember. It was kind of one of the reasons that we had to leave central London and, and head down. We moved in with my grandfather and my uncle and um, kind of went from there. I spent a lot of time outside. Uh, my two younger sisters, so a lot of my childhood was whilst my mum and dad were at work, we spent time outside until they came home and um, ate dinner. So I think a lot of my experience has been um, that kind of street soccer piece that I think we've talked about in the past and that unorganized aspect of play. Um, and then pretty much um, my mom had a brain hemorrhage at 42 when I was 15. And so I think a lot of things for me changed. I ended up becoming, um, it was kind of the year before I was graduating high school, but I ended up becoming a little bit more of the woman of the house. My dad was out working. I would make sure that there was food on the table for my sisters, but, you know, they were pretty easy to look after. They weren't that much younger than me. And we were about two years apart. Um, but my mom since then hasn't worked and kind of had a speech issues. Wasn't really able to walk, spent a good two years trying to figure that piece out. And I ended up going to work with my dad at 16 for a little bit and then decided that from there I was going to pursue this college thing, much to his, um, he wasn't really supportive of it. His mind was, you know, you're out in the working world and you earn money and you bring it home. And But I think eventually he came around. Um, but my parents are doing well. Um my dad is a diabetic and has had some issues, some health issues with that over the sort of last 10 years. And that's kind of shaped part of who I am and, and who I am. I'm also not I'm, you know, into the strength and conditioning piece, I think, because I don't want to end up like my parents for good or better. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just also something I, I try to promote. Um, with my sisters as well and so that's just something that we've grown up and, and realized that life can change in a split second and you should try and live it as much as you can and part of that is pursuing your dreams and that's kind of why I went to college and then my middle sister didn't she went off traveling and then my younger sister also went to college and you know from there we kind of chose our paths in life so just the two sisters correct yep and then what is the how do I want to say this? Were your parents considered immigrants? 
Um, yeah, I guess. Um, so actually growing up, it was when we lived in central London in the 80s, um, you know, my mom was very passionate about making sure that we remembered our Irish heritage. Um, at that time in London, there was a lot of, you know, IRA bombings occurring. So that was pretty raw and, and, you know, there was obviously some troubles going on in Northern Ireland and we would go back to Ireland almost any chance we got. My dad built a house there. Um, so we would spend every, you know, vacation time or any time off school that we got to go back there. And, you know, I was reminded on a daily basis that I needed to ensure that I stuck up for my Irish heritage and that piece. So, um, I think a lot of people in London at that time were of Irish descent and kind of in the same boat, just trying to find work. There wasn't a lot of work back home, which is why my mum kind of moved over. And, um, you know, she's one of nine. My uncle's the only boy in the family, and he took over my nan's farm. But for the most part, everybody was in some type of trade. And so if you went to London, we were definitely the, the kind of group or family or cousins that any time we went back home, people thought we had made it and um, my dad did pretty well like I said and so it was an opportunity to share some of that I wouldn't say wealth but you know luxuries that we came across um, as a as a family that had made it um, but that definitely factored into some to some school life and making sure that you know I didn't support England in any World Cup, so I made sure that I supported Ireland. Otherwise, my mom would make sure I knew about it. Um, so, yeah, I think we found our own Irish community. Obviously, my dad's owning a bar. You can always find out plenty of Irish people in those. So, um, yeah, so it was fun. What it was, did it mean it to be a member of your family? What did that feel like? I think it felt like, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it felt, um, it felt like I had to grow up a lot earlier than I did want to. Um, like I said, I think being in London when there's, you know, some bombs going off and kind of this inclination that Irish people shouldn't be living in England and, and this kind of attitude that um we had to stick together um even at times when we didn't get along so um i think it just meant you know pulling together for for a greater good and and trying to make it because maybe everybody else was expecting you to what did you learn from your mom um I think I learned from my mom to always give back. We were raised uh, Irish Catholic and she had a very charitable heart, I would say. And, you know, maybe I had a couple favorite things every once in a while and, you know, a week or so later we'd be packing for Ireland and there'd be this bag of donations for the rest of our family and inside that bag of donations would be my favorite sweater and my mom would be like, oh, you don't need it. And I'm like, oh, well, actually, it's my favorite sweat. Yeah, I do need it. So it just became this, uh, you know, always give back, make sure you've got good manners, um, be a helping hand anytime you can. Um, you know, I'm with about anyone giving the shit off their back and 
And then if anyone needed a ride and we were sticking their thumb out, if she had three young kids in the back of the car, she'd pick them up and drive them to wherever they wanted to go. And I obviously I don't think you could probably do that nowadays, but for some reason she was very free-spirited and wild in a way. And I think that's kind of where I get a lot of my passion from. Um, and she was also super fiery, and I think I definitely have some of that. You know, she just... If anyone needs protecting or anyone needs, um, if there's a group of people or a single person that is not being represented well, then, you know, she would jump in front of anyone to, to kind of make sure that they're protected. Um, yeah, so, I mean, she lived like that, you know, most of her life right up until really um, she had the brain aneurysm and, you know, right before she had that she worked in a, in a bookmakers and one of the best stories everybody likes to tell me is that um a bookmakers for anyone that doesn't know is where you kind of go in and place bets on horses and my family was always involved with race horses growing up so um once we hit the recession and had to move down southeast she picked up a a small betting job and um one day there was a a, a couple guys that came in to try and rob the place i think they were armed and you know, she kind of picked up a stool and hit them down over the back, and out they went, no money in hand, and I don't think they ever came back. So that is a story that I don't tell too many people, but that's just my mom jumping in the fire when she probably could just give her over the money and, and not worry about, you know, a company. But I think her best friend worked with her, and she just got really protective of pretty much everyone in there because I think even the, even the punters were, like, friends of hers or she knew them or had gotten to know them well throughout her time there it's a great story what about your dad what did you learn from him uh my dad from a young age probably turned me into a clean freak um working behind a bar at like 14 15 he'd always have me cleaning and my sisters and i joke um you know we joke about hey remember that time when dad used to point to like the tiniest thing and say give that a tickle and touch and so we just joke around with that phrase like anytime something needs to be picked up or cleaned um but I definitely respected the way that he could walk into a bar that had been run down and get money from a brewery to do it up so it wasn't out of his own pocket and then uh, he just was a good salesman I think and that taught me a lot about um, how to take care of things and, and how to um, not be afraid of, of trying to get people to buy into something and, and you know, from there build a business kind of thing. So he did that over and over again. I think we moved from when I was born across London to five different pubs growing up before we moved down to southeast London. And, you know, just super hard working morning, noon and night. And, um, he was also very adventurous. We would drive across to Ireland sometimes if we didn't want to take a plane, we would drive all over Europe. Um, you know, I think he, uh, he kind of just had given me this sense of curiosity and sense of travel as well. So thinking about not only your family, but that kind of broader community that you lived in, uh, I have a, a framework that I use to kind of understand what culture is like before we define it overtly. So the first question I have to ask you is, if your community, and again, you can define this however you want, uh, was a symbol, any graphical representation, 
what would it be? Probably a lion. And then what was the story that your community told itself about itself? Um, I think it would tell a story of perseverance through historical difficulties, um, fearless, trying to make something better out of their life, um, hopeful, and to always have a sense of humor when doing it. And then what were the rituals or routines that supported that story? Um, well, like I said about growing up as an Irish Catholic, we would go to church every Sunday, um, you know, in and around the weekends, we would go to, uh, they had these social clubs called, kind of like your version of the Legion here, but um, there's different ones uh, back home, mostly in and around the church theme. So my dad ran, when we moved down to southeast London, uh, my dad ran the Sydenham Catholic Club uh, right near Crystal Palace. And so he was an avid Crystal Palace fan, so we're kind of going back to his roots, really. But um, that club was open, say, Thursday through Sunday. And so after Mass, there would be this gathering, you know, going into the pub at 11 a.m. seemed quite normal then. Um, but also, you know, I would work Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and uh, during those nights there would also be bands and things like that. So traditional Irish music, um, you know, my granddad would show up, or his old boys would show up, all Irish. And it was, some, it was a place that my nan and granddad could go to growing up when they were, you know, raising uh, my dad's family and um, be able to fulfill just that culture that Ireland has with kind of dancing and gathering and social socializing. Um, so that was pretty cool. I learned to jive pretty young and um, I think that was just a, that was definitely a ritual, you know, Friday, Saturday, I was obviously working in there, but you know, that group of elders would come in and it was just a, a group that you respected and could just sit down and tell old stories with. So any people that came in during the day and I wasn't too busy, I got to sit down and just learn so much history and learn about their experiences and feel grateful for where I was at and, and learn more about my history, which obviously encouraged my um, kind of philosophy of just rem remembering my heritage and, and where I came from. You use the word jive for, for we Americans. How did you use that word? So you learned to jive from a very, very young age. Yeah, it was just a, a type of dance um, that a pair would learn to dance to Irish music, kind of like a, I wouldn't call it a jig, I wouldn't call it foxtrot, just a type of way, a different way of dancing. Mm -hmm. We didn't learn like traditional Irish dancing where you're kind of dancing on your own, the like tappy, tap-tap stuff that everybody thinks is Irish dancing, but, you know, just different types of dances that you would do with your partner so everyone on the dance floor if they weren't with their wife or mother or 
someone, you know, they'd often try and bring up the, the nieces, the nephews, the grandchildren and teach them how to dance. So it just became this kind of, you felt embarrassed, but you were like, oh, I've got to do this. My granddad's just going to be disheartened if I don't. So here we go. Um, yeah, so we fit, somehow managed to fit a lot of people into very small square footage. It wasn't the biggest dance floor. It might have to be an Instagram post of yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'll try to find it. So in this community, what were the systems that controlled it? And it's defined very broadly any way you want. Um, controlled it. I think it was controlled by your grandparents, so top down, like hierarchy based in terms of, um, I don't know if that's what you mean, but I definitely felt that whilst it was controlled by, it was an expectation that you followed tradition. And because I was immersed into working pretty early on with my dad because of my mother's health, um, I kind of felt like I was no longer the child, but was more so, um, you know, like one of the elders and, and kind of would, I mean, obviously I'm the eldest child too, so I don't know if that's why I thought that, but those, that sense of control was, I think, down and was just something you were expected to do. And then once I felt like I was on board with everybody else and, you know, having my first beer at 16 with my granddad and, and that kind of thing, everything I felt wasn't too dissimilar from any of my peers at school. Like, uh, I think you grow up pretty quickly in London as compared to what I've seen here, at, at least in those times. Um, so I think maybe the control was, was top down and um, you, you had to follow it with some variation. And then what was power and how was it structured? Um, I think in my family, power was growing up money, um, which I feel very differently about nowadays. But growing up, we had everything. My dad was involved with... Uh, another bunch of Irish guys that all had these big ideas and I think actually some gambling was probably involved. My dad wasn't a big gambler. Um, when I talk about gambling, I mean owning or share owning like racehorses and, and going to those events. So growing up, it's, you know, pretty big, um, a pretty big event if you go to um, a racehorse event and that's just again part of culture I mean when you look at horse racing in general some of the best horses in the world are trained and bred in Ireland so there's this pride factor with that and so I think my dad when he made money he thought he'd really made it and probably spent more than he had and lemonade um, what champagne taste lemonade money type thing um and then, you know, I think other, I think I started to see other ways that people like to make money, and I didn't really approve of that, and kind of thought that this is what everybody does. Um, and then, yeah, I mean that was that was definitely the big power factor growing up, and then 
when we moved down, when we moved into my, my granddad's apartment with my uncle, I think everybody was a bit like, whoa, okay, we don't have that anymore. Um, even though we were pretty young, I think I was only 10. Um, it was the first time my mom had had to actually go out and work. And that's when she took up work in the um, bookmakers. And, um, you know, we were just trying to make ends meet at that point. So definitely did a 180. And all of a sudden, it made you feel powerless, I'm sure, because we, we as, as a family, had squandered that away and didn't realize that, again, in the click of a finger, it can, it can all go. Yeah. So. What was your relationship to education when you were young? Um, I wasn't great. I think, um, really the only time I took my education seriously right after my mom had, um, gotten, I never know what the phrase is to do, she didn't get sick, but she had her, um, incident. I kind of really knuckled down. Then I think I always was a, a good student, but I just wanted to be outside playing football and, wanted to be with the guys and you know they they all played football and were sporty and some of my my girlfriends were kind of sporty but I just felt like I could be myself and be free just playing I was pretty good at all the different sports that we had to offer at school um, and I became known for that for, for good or bad um, so education was definitely second or third on the tier I mean my mom and dad never spoke about it. They never told me to do homework. I didn't really read my first book until I probably went to college. And then I only picked up reading as a, as a kind of habit of educating myself and being intrigued by other people's work, probably even when I hit grad school. So I felt like education for me was definitely a late bloomer. Um, and hence why I've tried to recently create a blog and learn how to write properly or at least try to act in a way that you know you don't get better if I just keep talking about it I actually need to put pen to paper and, and get better at that um so that's definitely a part of my job where I'm always like hey can you can you look over this because I yeah I have to send this to my team and I think my team knows that I don't try to hide those inadequacies but I'm not a terrible writer I think people actually say I'm a good writer but for me I just feel like I'm a few years behind, but maybe it's not bad. And then how did you find football? And I will use the British football for this. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was just thinking London. Um, I found it pretty young. I When I grew up in central London, I went to uh, a primary school, which is like an elementary school. Uh, we typically have primary school, and you leave there at 11, and then you go to secondary school, and you leave there at 16, and then you're done with your schooling education at least your required schooling education. So my primary school growing up was a school right in London and um, everyone was an Arsenal fan. My first kit, be known to my dad, was an Arsenal kit um, because I was uh, playing some random youth soccer clinics or camps over in Highbury and all the guys in the playground were Arsenal fans so I wanted to be like them. Um, I think I remember having... Um, an old JVC green goalkeeper Arsenal jersey um, worn by David Seaman mm -hmm. just to do anything to get on the guys team I was I opted to go and goal and so um, 
I definitely remember that being one of my favorite jerseys. But yeah, so um, I felt like I was respected. I felt like I was selected first or second, not last or anything like that. And that's that was something that definitely stuck with me throughout all of my school career, even through high school, was that you know I could be one of the boys because I could play and they would pick maybe on their team at least in the top two or three um but yeah I mainly found it being a bored youngster at sort of four or five kind of started really young my mum said just we had a little playground in the back of our pub and I lived on a main street uh, and behind that was like a, an estate where other people lived so my mum and dad both worked in the bar morning noon and night and so any moment I got, I'd just be outside with a ball up against a wall, kicking it around, making my own stuff up, dribbling around my dog. I didn't care. I was just, I truly thought I was going to be, um, you know, whoever, um, Lee Dixon, who knows. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I found it. And then what about, then it, what about the gender associations with uh, football at the time? Was there much uh, female football? Um, well, there was Mia Hamm, so, um, again, going back to some of the comments earlier, you know, as an Irish person in England, the next big thing to do was to get to America. I mean, none of our, one member of our family long down the, the line of, um, you know, generations had, had made it over there, and so I had discovered Mia Hamm as I was growing up, and, um, it just seemed like America had this professional league that I couldn't believe existed, and I just wanted to do anything I could to get there. Um, but I think, honestly, when I was that young, I probably thought I was a boy and that I could play or that something would change or that as a girl I could play on the boys' team because I was just as good. So anytime I would watch, um, you know, we went to Wembley when, we, when I was young and um, – to see Crystal Palace versus Manchester United in the FA Cup final, and I think that was 90, oh my gosh, 91, I don't even know, I'm trying to think, but my dad would take me to a bunch of games, I was a season ticket holder, so it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I started to realise that I couldn't play on the boys team, and that, you know, I'd have to now start looking into women's football, um, and that's kind of where I you know, dabbled between a, a few different clubs to kind of figure that out. So you graduate, uh, do they call it graduating high school? Uh, no, <laughs> just, you just pass. So, so you finished school at 16, you worked a little bit uh, with your father, uh, then what? What was the next big step for you? Um, I basically persuaded or maybe just simply told my dad with the fear of God in my eyes that I was going to go to Orpington College. Um, so we have between 16 and 18, you can go to, it's almost like a community college here, but you have to go that route to get into university because we don't have anything post 16 at high school. Um, I knew that what I wanted to do kind of or the area and you have to specialize quite early, which is unique. So I told my dad, I'm going to Orpington college. It's a two year program. Uh, it's called a BTech in sports science. If I pass that, I'm eligible to apply for university. And so I did that and had a, a class about 
20, 25 people for two years that became very good friends. And my tutors, as we call them, not professors, they were just tutors of ours, uh, both called Karen, so that could get confusing. Um, we're just fantastic with us. It was kind of a brand new course, um, but we definitely, you know, lived it up as much as we could. I got a part-time job coaching with Crystal Palace, a part-time job as a lifeguard in the leisure center next door uh, because the college was attached to this fitness center. And yeah, just went with that and did that for two years. And I was thinking of having a gap here because I wanted to travel, um, but actually I ended up partaking in a one of those summer camp experiences that they try to persuade you to go on when you're abroad when I'm you know as a, a European like hey go to America do the whole camp experience you'll live your life and um, I didn't really know what to expect and I just thought oh why not I'm 18 may as well do it now and I applied got in and ended up going to um, this uh, at the time I was a uh, just a, a camp, like a Boy Scout camp, but they had this um, history of, it was in Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, and I ended up becoming, I was only supposed to be the, the soccer coach and the lifeguard, but I ended up being the director of sports of the entire camp, and that was one of the best learning weeks of my life, and learned a ton about the um, Native American culture, because it was a camp that specialized in... Um, you know, helping you understand those traditions. And again, being someone that's of Irish descent, I really took to that. And after that, I basically got back and said, oh boy, I want to go straight back to America. So I need to, to get to university right now. So I went through something like a clearinghouse. Um, I was playing for a pretty decent club at the time. I'd moved on to Mill Football Club and didn't want to go far away because I was playing relatively high level my my first you know tutor at the time my one of my first mentors Jim Hicks he had offered me an opportunity to coach the U10s and U12 center of excellence girls and U10 academy boys and so I ended up just wanting to stay closer to home and that's kind of how I stumbled upon the University of Greenwich you mentioned Crystal Palace was your first coaching experience correct what what led you there and what was that like? Um, my dad and uncle were avid Crystal Palace fans. And so obviously once I got over my fascination with Arsenal, with Southeast London, um, I think part of it was, you know, I wanted to be able to go to games with my dad and uncle and then, and then feel a bit proud of, um, you know, me in, in football. Um, I think my dad also had um, some homophobic um, kind of underlying issues with women's football. And so he didn't necessarily love me playing it as I got into the kind of 10 through or 11 through 15 era. Um, so I ended up playing for Crystal Palace. I think I was there from U12 through U15 and um, I mean, he would come to my games. He actually ended up um, sponsoring one of my um, kind of side club teams called Elms Football Club. So I think he was starting to get into it. And then um, 
pretty much around that kind of age of 16 was was when I started working for Crystal Palace in the community. So I was actually just going around to different communities that had kind of a, a street soccer vibe to it and just showing up to keep kids off the street, doing any anything negative and, and throwing in some drills and a couple free t-shirts and all that jazz. And um, I mean, it was great. It just got me out there and coaching quite early on. Um, I'd taken my FA level one at that age as well. So I was doing everything I could to, to kind of get immersed into the coaching ladder. And I think that's where I really started to fall in love with soccer more. Um, but then afterwards, I think the team that I was on had a couple older players who were retiring. And I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to do the big leap of faith over to Millwall Football Club, who had been known for years before that as the first women's club to really kind of take off um, you know, now's the time to do it. And so that's when I moved over and my dad wasn't too happy. And I was my uncle because I don't know much you know about rivalries in the world mm-hmm. of football, but uh, Crystal Palace, Millwall are pretty much like the, uh, the movie Green Street is yeah. a bit of a nightmare. So they weren't too happy, but I think they got over it eventually again. And so that became a bit more of a serious coach instinct like I said, when Jim Hicks actually gave me my own team and it was a team in the academy and a team in the center of excellence. And, you know, from there on, I was still at Alpington College, so I was pursuing some other level ones in other sports because they were that was part of the um, curriculum with this BTEC in sports science was that they would qualify you in as many sports as you could at your level one. And back then it was like a two-day course. Um for, for any sport so uh, that kind of gave me an interest in teaching phys ed because obviously you have to teach a broad range of sports um, and yeah kind of kind of from there I just kept on coaching did you and see try your, to keep playing did you see yourself as a coach or was it just something of convenience you did it because you liked being around football yeah, I definitely think to begin with it was convenience. It was also it didn't pay much. I think we got paid like if you had your FA level two, which I had gotten after being at Mill for about a year, you you went up from ten pounds an hour to fifteen, um, and that was two two times a week for two hours. At that time, I was still working in pubs, you know, on a on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, which I felt was affecting my performance, and I knew that. Um, but was still able to train and play at a relatively decent level, but wanted to slowly but surely pull myself out of that. But uh, I also just had this, um, I think I felt bad, like maybe leaving my dad on his own. I mean, he he started to get other workers, so gradually but surely it became a little bit easier. And I think as I was able to focus a little bit more on myself or you know, possible career ideas. Um, I really started to embrace the coaching as, wow, this could be something I could do. I just had never seen any female role models to think it was possible because everyone growing up when I was younger um, was someone's dad or, you know, a, a former player on the men's side, uh, either Palace or Millwall. Right. So uh, you started coaching. You go to Greenwich. Is it Greenwich or Greenwich? We, we say Greenwich, but... I'm going to say you Greenwich. Can, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, okay, is that four years? 
Uh, no, it's only three. Okay, three years. You graduate with a degree. Yep. Uh, how do you end up in America? Um, good question. It took a while. Right after I graduated, I had this sense that, oh, I've graduated. I have a degree. This automatically means I'll get a job. And I could have been more wrong. Um, I ended up being a personal trainer with LA Fitness for a year. And that's kind of where I got into the strength and conditioning piece. But I also ended up helping a friend with his coaching business in, in schools. And kind of, it was a bit of an exhausting year. And I thought to myself, there's got to be more than this. And so one of the other options you can do is a postgraduate postgraduate certificate in education which is what you need to go and be a phys ed teacher or any teacher really so it's called a pgce um i managed to get on a course um they even gave me money to take the course i didn't have to pay any tuition so i thought well this is a no-brainer and was able to keep playing so i went back to greenwich actually after a year of doing trial and error and got my PGCE and then ended up um, being a phys ed teacher for two years at Sydenham Girls School, uh, like an inner city London school. And then after that, I went back to one of the schools that I was a trainee teaching at and became head of girls PE or phys ed, uh, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed both experiences. Um, but then I kind of went through a bad breakup and had this kind of epiphany again. When am I going to do this whole America thing? It had been in the back of my mind since I was younger. And then a guy who I met on my UA for B, um, I think I was the only female on my UA for B. So him and I got chatting. He had been pursuing his master's in America. And he said, why don't you try the States? And I thought, yeah, well, I don't even know how to start that process. And you need thousands of dollars to get started and he said you should look into graduate positions graduate assistant positions so he sent me the link to smith college one that he had looked at um i didn't even know where it was uh what it was about so i just sent an application in in january uh found out in march that i'd gotten in um they gave me a really reasonable package otherwise i wouldn't have been able to do it and then by July, I was selling my apartment. And by August 10th, I had packed. Actually, I went up London to buy a suitcase big enough to fit as much clothing in as I could and left the rest for my sisters to box because I was like, wow, this is really happening. Um, can, you, can you pack my apartment and sell it for me, please? Um, just kidding. My, my younger sister, my middle sister, Colleen, had begged me to uh, let her rent my apartment that I had bought in kind of the middle of London or on the outskirts a little bit, but I was like, there's no way you're going to be able to afford this. So I stupidly listened to her because she guilt-tripped me, and then last minute we realized that she wasn't going to be able to afford it, but luckily a buyer came through uh, in September whilst I was out at Smith, and um, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened, and every time I went home I brought back a little bit more clothing, one bit at a time, that's that was in 2010 and it was a, a two-year graduate position two-year graduate position you graduate and you're coaching with the women's soccer team um so i start it, so when i started i was coaching the smith college team right, yes okay. kind of throughout tell me about that 
cultural experience going from coaching in the UK now to coaching in America? Uh, I mean, I ne- I had glimpses through like Ben did like Beckham of what college life looked like, <laughs> um, and I don't know everything. I had no idea about Division Three, what the NCAA was. I literally knew nothing. So when I stumble upon like this stunning campus, um, and my head coach gives me game breaker to figure out because they're going to do film, which I'd never, we'd never done film, even in my playing career. I'm like, oh boy, I've signed myself up for something way over me. Um, but eventually um, figured it out. And just, I think culturally it just seems so professional, big. Um, I loved the town and the school and everything that it stood for. Um but yeah, had no idea. I think one of the hardest things for me was, strangely enough, the food. I was just so overwhelmed at the grocery store that um, I think I saw a few people eating some bagels for breakfast. And I think I put on about 10 pounds because I just ate bagels at least for breakfast and lunch twice a day for a good four months until I was like, okay, I just need to go there and spend some time <laughs> looking at the ingredients to figure out you know, why this tastes different? Heinz ketchup, you think it's the same. It's really not. Mm-hmm. It's like, so, yeah. So that was a big adjustment, um, but also just blown away by the enormity of just life and college soccer and college sports and the animal that it is. So what was the culture like at Smith on the soccer team? Um... I would say at the time that knowing what I know now about collegiate sports, I think it felt um, a little club-like mm-hmm. in terms of um, what people were committed to doing, what the staff were committed to doing. Um, I think we tried to create a culture of making this a little bit more competitive um, the the woman that hired me, Stephanie Gabber, is a tremendous person and, and coach, and she unfortunately decided to move on and pursue other things right around December, and my buddy, Caitlin Okamoto, um, was in her second year of her GA program, and so she was you know trying to figure out her next step, which ended up being an assistant position at Amherst, and so in the spring, I felt like I had been given this opportunity to kind of lead some sessions um you know get the team um keep them moving until a new head coach was uh, assigned and uh, that was definitely unexpected but I felt like I dealt with it as best I could and just wanted to make sure that the players knew that we were still there for them and you know that we'd find a new great coach and everything would be all right uh, but it's a women's college. Uh, I don't know how much you know about mm-hmm. Smith. Um, very academic. We had amazing people and driven, you know, genders on our team that wanted to pursue some amazing things. And that was very inspiring for me because I had never thought about gender like that in terms of before getting to the states i'd never thought about the different things that women could do in the engineering world and they were just some of the most inspiring people i'd ever been around and so that was um very clear to see in their in their passion for the game 
did your perception of coaching change? From being at Smith? Yeah. Uh, I think I, I think definitely at grad school I started to realize that there's a lot more to the, um, the person as just a player. I think I just was like, they just want to get moving. They just want to get touches. They just want to play. I don't need to worry about anything else. But um, when I got there, Stephanie and Caitlin had a lot of different things in place, such as goal setting, which I'd never really talked about or discussed at Millwall because they were in the center of excellence. They definitely um, would do some different types of testing that actually Dawn Scott, who's with the U.S. Women's National Team, had implemented throughout all the 24 center of excellences in the country. So I knew that piece was this piece was, was important and we had to do a couple of individual like sit-downs and profiles, um, but I felt like that was it was a one-way street. It was all about the coach asking the question and the, and the kid ask, uh, answering or ranking themselves and then talking about it, but very little time was spent on asking questions a little bit more meaningful and deeper at the core of, you know, who this person is and, and why they're here and, and where do they want to go. How did, you, how did you know that that was important? Uh, I think once I got to America you obviously have the players every single day um you get to see what's important to them outside of soccer so the the academic piece um and so i would go along and actually sit in their classes if they were presenting something and, and just wanted to show that we cared a little bit beyond the field or hopefully a lot beyond the field um but just being around players more often you start to humanize yourself with, you know, the, the, the kind of conversations you're having as you're walking out to the field. You're like, oh, how was your day? And they start talking and you just start finding out all of these things that you had no idea this person existed beyond the, um, you know, silhouette of them being a player. So it just, it, it just sort of dawned on me, like, there's more to this than just x's and o's and it's five days a week or it's seven days a week every week for at least the competitive season um so i i just really started to think about other ways in my coaching that i could be more effective um in helping them so if the culture at smith was an animal what animal would it have been Um, wow. Trying to think. Gosh. Maybe an owl. Why do you say that? Um, I think owls, obviously, there's this tendency, the, the old wise owl, um, that I feel is always looking for a deeper meaning to things and I I don't see it like flying Mm -hmm. around flapping its wings a little bit like some of the other birds of prey I don't know so I think it's very still uh, motionless but uh, I just picture having a big heart and using its brain a little Mm -hmm. bit more and um, but definitely that stillness up high of, of looking around at the surroundings and being more 
Um, I felt like perhaps our players loved soccer and wanted, you know, they wanted it to be competitive, but, you know, they were there to get an education and be aware of all the other things that are going on, especially at a women's college like Smith, where they're, you know, perhaps fighting other causes on behalf of other people and for themselves and equality and, and different things. It just made me realize that there's obviously more to life than just soccer. And I really appreciated that. And that calmness I felt enabled me to see that. So after Smith, where do you go? So after Smith, I am trying to apply for jobs and I wasn't overly successful. My dad at the time's health was all over the place, up in the air. And so I went home, uh, I think at the end of May, my sister and her friends came out for my graduation. Uh, Jane Lynch was the speaker, and we got to meet her. It was awesome. She, too, thought me and my sister were Australians. And um, I think a, a week or so after that, I went home. I worked in the bar that I had been working in, um, you know, prior to leaving just as a part-time uh, gig. Um, it was a, it wasn't the same bar as my dad's. It was a guy called Patrick who, uh, kind of took me under his wing and, and I'd always work for him if I went back cause he'd always need staff. And next thing I know, my best friend, Carly Gettler, whose dad, Jeff Gettler is also a collegiate coach or was, he had been at Richmond for a number of years, which is also where she played. He had been working up at Hudson university in Bangor, Maine, and had told her that, hey, um, the women's head coach is about to leave. It's quite last minute because obviously it's the summer. Um, Carly had originally applied for the assistant job but was now being given the head job. So uh, she basically Skyped me in the downstairs kitchen of this bar on my dinner break. And uh, we did like a little interview and asked me if I'd be her assistant. So I was like, cool, all right. Um and at the time, I think I was working for Manchester United that, that summer. I'd started working for them in, in the summer of 2010, their soccer schools, and had just gotten, I think I had another two weeks to work for them. But pretty much after that, I flew out August 20th, uh, no, August, I don't know, basically a two days before BC joined Carly and ended up living with her and her family who were kind enough to let me stay for very cheap rent because I think my salary then was $5,000. And again, I wasn't sure how I was going to make it happen, but I thought I'll worry about that when I have to worry about it. And yeah, I ended up coaching with, you know, one of my best friends and it was amazing. I mean, Carly has obviously grown up her father in, um, her kind of, you know, as her visionary and, and he's a big role model for her and very successful coach himself. So just even seeing how she did things was very eye-opening and she's still to this day someone I highly um, admire and always go to for advice about anything. And so, yeah, I coached there just for a year. I ended up, um, because I did need money over, over the winter break, um, I took my CSCS qualification, which is basically a strength and conditioning qualification that allows me to either work with individuals or teams. Uh, lacrosse needed an assistant coach. I'd never heard of lacrosse, but I said yes. And pretty much the head coach just wanted me to take care of their fitness and things like that. And so 
that was a great experience because so, some of the women's soccer players were on the lacrosse team and it was just great to be immersed in another sport I'd never been a part of and after that I was job hunting again and pretty much like two days before I had to fly back home again because I couldn't find anything um I think at that time I needed a visa so the hiring process can get difficult uh I interviewed at Hamilton and so I had my interview before I flew home went home for a bit flew back and started at Hamilton that so fall. the coach that started at Smith College who's now gone through uh, now on their third program what have you learned or what did you find yourself thinking about differently when you started at Hamilton as opposed to when you started at Smith as related to coaching um, I think going from Smith to Husson um the way that Carly was organizing things just seemed that perhaps um, it was a little bit more competitive. And so I started to see what that looked like. You know, we had fitness tests at Smith, but, you know, they maybe weren't as, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. I just remember feeling that Hassan at the time, and I think that's just because of the experience that Carly had had because we also she also went to Smith as well but she ended up being the graduate assistant at Mount Holyoke which is just across the road um I had just felt that given we didn't have a head coach at Smith throughout the entire two years that I wasn't able to get a consistent feel for what was right and what was wrong and then I knew that Carly had had that experience so when I got to work with her I felt like really that was my true experience of seeing what it looks like from you know back to front including the spring I mean for the spring I felt like I was at Smith I was just running technical sessions just trying to get people confident and comfortable on the ball uh, didn't really delve into too much tactics felt like there wasn't overly a lot of time for that at Smith but at Husson that was a big part of what Carly wanted to do that game understanding piece and then going from there to Hamilton um, similar to Smith kind of that high academic high achieving caliber type student athlete um, just realizing that things felt like a, maybe a little bit more on edge and a little bit there was a higher expectation and, and that there was um, limited time to do things with, you know, the NESCAC policy, no spring and no preseason. So um, the priorities changed, I think, a little bit, but there was a higher expectation on the player to come in a bit more fit than maybe at Husson and maybe at Smith because there's just limited time to do anything with it. So the culture at Smith was an owl. What about Husson? What was the animal that the, represented the culture to you? Uh, gosh. I felt maybe car the culture at Hassan RAD was awesome too. Um, I felt like that trickled throughout the other sports. So, I mean, I'd maybe go back to the lion piece or a wolf of some kind. So, competitive. Um, I mean, Carly's got a big heart too. So sometimes that doesn't come across in coaching for any of us because we're mm -hmm. so busy getting things done. But I think, um, you know, from all those experiences in being, you know, that's maybe what I've tried to do differently in my 
in, in this program in, in my own experience, but um, I pitched, the, you know, the lion and wolf and, and those kind of typically mm-hmm. aggressive, somewhat strong, fearless animals still having, you know, a heart, but maybe it's just not shown and what about Hamilton? as much. Uh, probably, probably not too dissimilar. Um, I mean, my, I would say again, a a lion or a wolf. I mean, um, I think both, you know, again, from, from the beginning of the whole experience, this was really the first time I'd had any female head coaches in my life as an assistant as well. Um, one of the best female coaches that I'd had really one experience with back home before all of this had happened was a woman called Kay Cossington, who really gave me a lot of opportunities um, and who inspired me to kind of pursue maybe the, the A license pathway. And it was really just fascinating to, to think that I hadn't had that experience so far. So really I felt like when I got to America, I was getting all these different experiences from these strong women Um who I could see more potential from who they were inside coming out than maybe what was available. Whereas maybe growing up with guy coaches, you just see a lot of the lion and the wolf, but you don't get to see much behind that kind of facade, at least Mm -hmm. in my experience, because they were just trying to get stuff done. But um, I I feel like the experience in the United States is definitely more intimate too, because you're spending more time with these people. Whereas, um, I only trained three times a week and played maybe once or twice and then I only coached twice a week. So similarly going back to priorities. Um, but I would say maybe Hamilton is the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just my perception um, or what I'm attracted to. Um, but And how long were you at Hamilton? Um, about five okay. years. Five years at Hamilton. And then you get the call up to St. Lawrence. And this yes. is where we get to really dive in. So what was it like to be uh, given the head job? Um, I kind of didn't believe it, to be honest. I had, um, I mean, everything with the St. Lawrence job kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't originally looking to leave Hamilton, and then all of a sudden the job kind of posted and I knew great things about it. Um, and Colette said, the head coach Hamilton, you've got to go for this. Um, I don't want you to leave, but you got to go for this. So it was kind of funny. I'd also just booked a trip to Australia for about four weeks. And so I didn't know how it was going to work because it had been advertised pretty much at the end of the season. Um, so everything was up in the air, but I had interviewed for it. But then I'd also applied to a job out in California and wasn't able to interview for that until I got back from Australia a whole month later and, you know, finally was able to give St. Lawrence my answer, which I, I knew all along it was going to be that, but I'd felt bad probably that I'd applied for this job and wanted to at least have a compared experience um, because I'd been offered this job. It was really the first job I applied for as a head coach and I was very fortunate to get the offer and really couldn't believe it. I was like, this has got to be a joke. And yeah, I mean, no regrets. And um, yeah, it was, it's still 
I have to pinch myself every now and then to remind myself that this is actually happening. But um, it's it's been seamless too in, in one way. I think Colette gave me a pretty big role at Hamilton and then also allowed me to do a lot of or implement a lot of the ideas that I'd wanted to in that last season at Hamilton. Um, and so I was very grateful for that because I felt like that definitely prepared me for head coaching and um, and all the other experiences too, obviously. So day one, you step on campus. What do you feel about your team? I thought they were great. I thought that... They embraced a uh, silly game of popcorn that I made them play um, just to kind of break the ice straight away. Like, let's get the awkwardness out, people. Um, you know, I knew the minute I started speaking. Obviously, I'd met a few of them. Um, actually, I hadn't met any of them in the interview process, but I talked to a couple of them. And I got talking to the captain straight away. There was two captains, two senior captains, and I wanted to continue to honor their captaincy and, and they were just fantastic. The seniors were abroad, so I hadn't even met them, but we Skyped and, and spoke a lot. Um, but that first day of meeting the entire team um, was daunting. Uh, I knew that they wouldn't be able to figure out where the heck I was from. So the minute I opened my mouth, they were going to be confused. So that's, again, why we implemented this um game of popcorn um but the assistant coach too jordan may who just took up a a, a great head coaching job at greensboro college in, in north carolina she was the ga here she was actually supposed to graduate uh that may but luckily continued on for an extra year so i give her incredible credit as to why we had the season we did but also the she probably saved my life staying that extra year because I don't know if I would have known what the heck I was doing. And I still probably didn't. But at least I was familiar with her because she had been mm -hmm. at Bates during my early years at Hamilton. So I think any other experience where people are walking in a bit blind and don't know the assistant, I'm sure it's more difficult. I think I probably got an easier feel for everyone because I knew Jordan and trusted her straight away and could get a sense of what she would tell me about the team and, and how it's been and where it's going. So did you walk in with a plan of what you wanted or did you walk in just waiting to see what was there? Um, I had plans and ideas of how I wanted to meet and greet people. Like I had a kind of a list of people I wanted to get to around the campus. I had a, a couple ideas of how I wanted to quickly get each player into my office and learn more about them um i also had you know a team meeting and put some things in place such as i put in a couple policies and rules about academics behavior alcohol and because i am a qualified strength coach they were using some online platform called vault which is great but it doesn't tell you if your technique's incorrect and you're about to throw a disc out so I had to get them in the weight room and, and test them a little. We do a three rep max test, not a one rep max. And got some data, um, went in there and showed them a couple techniques to make sure that they could actually do everything properly. So I think I probably had a little bit more of a hands-on experience with them because I was kind of doubling as their head coach and, and strength coach. And they were all excited about that, about having some attention in the weight room. Obviously, I'm sure there's still some to this day that hate it, but 
um, you know, that's just one of my number top three things that you have to be willing to do. So I had ideas in that sense and I'm not a big like rule person, so to speak, but I feel like I needed to make sure that nobody was going to step out of line or fall off while we were all trying to quickly learn who one another, you know, were, especially if I'm implementing a weightlifting piece that they've never done before. I don't want them getting EMT'd on a, on a Friday, Saturday night because that's just not going to work. Do I know you're going to drink as a student athlete? Yeah, of course, but um, we don't need silly things happening for the bottom line, your health and safety and um, just things I wanted to make sure that they were safe and that they had some type of um, new rule in place by the head coach, whether it was five rules or 15 rules. I don't think it was 15. I think it was like five. Um, so I quickly forged those ideas. I think I took them from my experience before, um, at Hamilton because that was something Colette had implemented. And I think for the most part with the alcohol policy, it just kept people out of unnecessary trouble and, and helped us to actually talk about some problems at depth and get people the right help. If there was a reason for them using alcohol or drugs or anything like that for the for the so wrong I heard reasons. you put a lot of emphasis on getting to know the student athletes on a deeper level why is that important to you i just want to know why they're here um what makes them tick um you know maybe what their challenges are on a daily basis um what their family expectations of them are and you know favorite foods, favorite quote, uh, favorite team, but also, you know, things that scare them or, or challenges them or difficulties that they have. And what does knowing that information do for you as a coach? I think it helps me create like a, a transcript of or a dialogue throughout our time as a team to be more aware of things that either may upset certain individuals or, or know how how I need to address certain problems that might arise either in the classroom um, but also ensure that I'm adapting to each individual based on their needs because I don't like to to kind of tarnish everyone with the same broad brush because it just doesn't work. I'm not going to assume everybody's going to find weightlifting really, really easy because somebody might have some body image issues or, you know, they may not have a great understanding of nutrition, nutritional needs. They may be getting three hours of sleep at night. So I need to know what keeps them up at night and, and what wakes them up in the morning, you know, how passionate they are, what, what makes them tick. So you have a somewhat unique experience because unlike a lot of coaches, when there's a coaching change, you inherited a program that's been fairly successful. Um, what, if anything, about that culture did you feel needed to change? Or was it more just improve on what's there? Um, I think the, the two biggest changes um, that I probably implemented with that was I'm not a big hierarchy person. Um, 
I don't want, I, I mean, those individual meetings, I, I talk to people about making sure that you come in here and that you, if you're going to challenge me about something great, but give me, give me an alternative, present, don't just present, um, the problem, give me a solution. And I, I'm just a collaborative person by nature. I think, uh, I'm like a sponge. I want to absorb information. Sometimes I try to absorb too much and I just want to make sure that that hierarchy piece isn't I don't believe in seniors first. I believe in the fact that you have dedicated four years of your life and you are due the utmost respect. But at the same time, I'm not just going to play you because you've got a title over your head. I'm going to play you based on your performance. And to be honest, I think that was actually quite refreshing. So that's when I realized that maybe that was a change. Not that was needed. It's just coach preference, right? It doesn't mean it's wrong or right. Um, the previous head coach is a great person and a, and a, and a great coach. And I think um, that was his model. And, and maybe that's, it's probably an easier model to follow because you just play the, the, the older ones. Whereas I've got, a, I feel like I've got a harder job of trying to figure out who's actually performing and who's not out of a bigger group, uh, kind of casting a wider net. So that was the biggest piece in terms of that. Um, I have a leadership committee in place, even though I had the, the two captains and I honored them. I also wanted to put in more voices into the mix, but still allowed the two captains to be the ones that came to me uh, through that pipeline, but wanted to give other representatives of each class maybe a, an opportunity to be a voice. And... That was something I think, along with the playing piece, that was just very different and refreshing, and and the seniors really embraced it. I mean, they are some of the most incredible women I've ever had the pleasure of working with and having honest conversation with. I mean, really, only probably two or three of them got to play out of the five, um, but I wanted to make sure that they understood the whole team understood that you may not be playing or you may not be getting as much time as you used to, but you are still valued as a person. Um, and that's important to us. We, you know, we can't, the top players on the team can't perform unless you are, um, doing your part and, and embracing your role. But at the same time, you need to know that they wouldn't do that without your support and, and all the other things that you're doing turning up at training every day knowing you're not going to play but you are still putting 110% into practice because that's needed and I can't have you really slack off because you know if you want to be a part of this team which I'm allowing you to do then I still need a full commitment and I just try and help them understand that I know it's hard really really hard but that there is a silver lining in that it will build endurance for you know some other challenges later on in life do you feel that after one season, your culture is in a different place or more of the same? Um, I think it's more of the same right now. So when I first got to St. Lawrence, as mentioned, I implemented some rules, but I also implemented some policies. And one of the policies is a fitness standard. Um, the fitness standard is they have to pass the yo-yo at a certain level to be required eligible to play. I didn't implement it last year, although I had the same number that I desired for them to achieve because I wanted to get them a good 
six months to a year of lifting and working on, you know, their strength conditioning, um, you know, that piece, because I believe it can take that long to kind of really get to grips with and, and also just building muscle in general. And they knew right from the beginning that this upping fall was going to be the big day of, okay, if you don't pass, you can still practice, but you can't play. And so with that, I'm expecting, you know, I'm pretty open-minded. I'm pretty chilled as a person. I'm not expecting everyone to pass. I'm not stupid. I'm not expecting everyone to not pass, but I'm expecting something in between. And so really I'm trying to implement pieces to be ready for that kind of culture shock because, you know, it really could go one way or the other. Um, and that is just what I'm prepared for. And, you know, who knows? They say the second year of head coaching is the worst one. So here we go. Um, I've got the floaties on. I'm ready to roll. So um, I just keep faith that long term I'm doing the right thing. And the people that want to be more competitive as a program are on board and always have been and it's just time for that other group to either get on board or you know pick a lane and, and decide what it's going to be because we've we've had a year and a half and I think I've been fair but I, I know that some people won't see it that way so and why that's do you fine. think the second year is given that reputation what is it about that second year I don't know I mean quite honestly I don't. I never even really knew my record until from last year until people started asking on visits, and then I was like, okay, I probably should put it on a sticky and put it on the front of my computer because I don't look at numbers and data. I should say numbers and data. I do because I'm a strength coach, but in terms of that, oh, you won or you lost, you tired or you beat so and so. The same way I tell my players not to get, um, you know too high one way or too low the other way about minutes on the field um, because you could be out there for 90 minutes but if you're staring at the stars you haven't done a thing to contribute to the flow of the game and that butterfly effect so I always talk about quality over quantity and I, I just wonder if you know I, I kind of flew by the seat of my pants in, in the first season I did what I could, I did what I thought was necessary I, I failed, I I learned a lot, but I don't necessarily attribute those winning results or, the, or that overall season as me, as what I did. I think it was a, a team and a group effort, and I think I don't know if some people get excited by their results and then take the, the foot off the gas the second year. I don't really know. I think, obviously, one big part of it is you're bringing right. in a, a new recruiting class that is what you – perceived to be your ideal of what it should look like and what it should feel like and what the personality should look like and the level of com competition and some people just get a bit put out by that and if you don't catch those fires early then there goes the whole forest so I think it's probably more to do with that than coaches taking their foot off the gas. I think most coaches in a new role are still passionate mm -hmm. to keep going. And, you know, obviously I hope I am too. So I think it's more the latter mm -hmm. of recruiting. That's my sense as well. And my own experience is that uh, that first class becomes the representation uh, of perceived favoritism or could, could, right? So these yeah. are the coach's first recruiting class 
they're different from me, therefore I'm scared. And once I get scared, uh, I'm going to react in a lot of different ways to deal with that anxiety. And some of that time is, uh, you know, is pushing back against the team culture because they want to kind of establish themselves. <clears throat> so, sure. um, yeah. okay, thinking about the culture right now at St. Lawrence, if there was a symbol that represented the culture, what would it be? Right now, I would say it's more of a, uh, like a cheetah or a leopard, I okay. think. And then what is the story that the team tells itself about itself? I think the story that they tell without me being in the room is that, um, we are a group of women who want to be more competitive. We've recognized that this program has great history and has had great success in the past. And we also appreciate and recognize that our conference itself is getting more and more competitive. You know, we added Ithaca over a year ago and they took four teams to the NCAAs last year. And so now it's, it's go time. And I think, they are creating a story about wanting to be competitive on the scoreboard, but also knowing that the day-by-day details of um, helping a teammate, being a good person, being mindful of their body, mind, and soul is as much of an important detail nowadays as putting the ball in the back of the net. What are the rituals and routines that are in place to reinforce that story? Uh, every summer we have a book club, so we are following the John Gordon theme last year. We followed the energy bus, and we spent a lot of time in preseason, um, and I kind of give them this information during the summer when I select the book about making sure that they're prepared for preseason activities such as presenting one of the the rules as you may call them um, on how to be a good teammate for example and so they can get as creative and as funny as they want Um, and then we kind of just talk off of that with the Carol Dweck mindset piece of uh, you know there's going to be ups and downs there's going to be times of frustration there's going to be times where we could be winning we could be on a good game streak and we still have issues, right? It's not going away just because we're on a winning streak um, and that we need to address those problems as early as possible because I think every team has them. Um, so I think the book club has helped keep a spine in all of us with how we want to hope our season will end. And then every preseason, we reestablish our values and standards. So we spend a good two to four hours on that and that is regardless of your role regardless of whether you pass the yo-yo or not whatever you are involved in that process and you have a voice and a platform to vocalize that piece um and then i think one of the biggest things is this year we implemented a kind of end of season award ceremony um we have you know coaches player players player but the one that I try to give 
more of a platform to is the Saint Spirit Award. And that is the person that nobody knows is working their backside off, even though perhaps they're not getting playing time at all. Um, and just going above and beyond for the greater good of our team and being a good teammate. And the person that won it last year is, is a perfect example of that. And so obviously everybody likes to be recognized so um, and feel part of the team. So we try to reward that. We also have weekly woman of the match, typically. Um, this year we'll probably do woman of the practice as well because there may be people who aren't eligible to play if they don't pass the yo-yo. So I still want to make sure that those people are valued for their hard work, even if I've said to them, you'll probably not get any playing time this year or maybe ever. And then I've also established opportunities for people to have a say in what we do as a program. And that's just because I've told them that I don't just want to be recognized or we don't want to, my hope is the program doesn't want to be recognized as one of the elite teams in the region, um, which everybody I think wants to be. And I say region just because I want to start small. Um, but in terms of being elite, I don't want it to just be wins and losses. I want people to recognize us on campus as a team that goes out of its way for its campus community and the community of Canton, um, that is aware of issues that's going on, is not afraid to stand up for what is right. And so we've created four committees, uh, community fundraising, uh, social media, and team gear. And everybody gets to vote which one they want to be on. And they have sporadic meetings throughout the year where they sometimes have to collaborate, especially if we're doing something to do with fundraising or especially if we're doing a big community event um, that we just allow people to have a voice and feel like they're part of this team and that they're not being told what to do every living minute because everyone's got something to offer but if you don't ask them they they're not going to come forward with it women just don't speak highly of themselves in that way not all of them anyway so they need to be pushed a little bit to get that out of them what is control and where does it come from think it comes from insecurity to be honest um when i think about implementing rules with my team i want to have some type of control because i'm insecure about the decisions that young people make nowadays um so i just want to keep them safe i think when players try to control the outcome of you know their performance in terms of being selected for a game or, or not uh, that you know is typically attributed to what they've been taught they need to do mm. by others you know what what it looks like to be successful so we did a big session last preseason on uh, I kind of got it from the what drives winning piece with um, you know mm -hmm. Becky Burley uh, and that aspect of you know if a parent's not at the game and they pick you up after a game, what's the first two things they ask you? And all the hands go up because they just know what's coming. And it's, you know, did you win? Did you score? And we talked about that on a deeper level. I think we ended up talking about it for an hour and a half. And it was awesome because you really get a sense of why people are checking their own stats, why people are checking that their bio doesn't have everything it said in high school. 
Um, and if it doesn't get updated, you know, God forbid, it means that I can't show off to my parents or my parents are sod showing off. The parents are already on it. They've got it on a shortcut online. And, you know, it's because people have a perception of what it looks like or what it makes them look like when uh, that really shouldn't be the case. And obviously it's kind of sad, but they talk about what we would want our parents to ask us. And it's, you know, did you have fun? How did it make you feel when your teammates scored? Um, you know, how was, how was practice this week? Did you, did you train hard? Um, are you feeling healthy? Did you get a good night's sleep? Uh, you know, it's, it's not like that. Unfortunately, it's, you know, some players or not on my team necessarily, but I think some people at college in general are doing it because there's no other option when they hit 16 Mm -hmm. or 18 or whatever it is. So it's just, I better follow the norm or else I'm going to look like a right idiot if I step away from those kind of cultural norms or my dad's going to be really disappointed if I don't go to uh, his alma mater and and get on that team. So it's just bonkers, but that's the way Yeah, what do they say? Uh, Certainly I've experienced it as a coach. I'm sure you have too, that if you watch, you know, a recruiting tournament at any given time on any field, there's 11 players who hate playing. You know, and they're just there for a lot of <laughs> different reasons that. other than loving of the game. So last question yeah. about the culture is where does power come from? I think power comes from, well, it comes from what we were just talking about, that expectation that everybody is trying to please somebody else. Um, you know, a higher power, so to speak. So um, we implement things that create a power dynamic in order to get some type of result that we're looking for to kind of please um, the powers that be. And and it, I, I think it becomes a bit of a trickle-down effect, right? Your, your leadership committee is trying to please the coach, so they're going to dictate to the team as to what they need to do. And, um, you know, I'm probably getting dictated by the athletic director, that kind of thing. So I think that's where power comes from. But it's my hope that we can disperse that power amongst every player on the team so that, uh, again, that collaboration piece, the idea is to make people feel a little bit powerless in that. I have to make sure that I represent that. So if I, if, a, if a player comes in and has an idea or they don't like something I did and I'm not willing to be open-minded about their suggestion or their answer or even take some of the heat for maybe a bad decision I made, then the rest of the group is going to be fearless about being okay with being mm-hmm. powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. If that's happening on the presidential level, like I don't really know in terms of that piece, but, um, you know, the academia piece with professors feeling like they can speak out unless they have tenure and then tenure sometimes, well, I don't know what the, I know, I know to keep my UA for B, I have to do certain CPD, but when you're a college coach or a professor that's tenured, I don't see much CPD going on. You could sit there till you're a skeleton and no one would probably find you unless you do something absolutely wrong. But I feel like there's a lack of, um, no, 
accountability well maybe maybe a little bit of accountability and so um or even maybe just a willingness or a desire to get better and part of that getting better is to give away right. some of your power you can't dictate all the time because feedback isn't always positive and i've tried to talk to my team about that you know, you're asking for feedback when you come straight off the field like what do you really want to hear and what do you want to hear because um some of the best love that you can give someone is a critique but it's not always going to be as fluffy and as positive as you've defined mm. positivity it might it might have a little piece or two in there that it's going to make your stomach churn. You're going to, your hairs are going to stand up in the back of your neck and you might go a little bit red, but the more you can do that, I think, with a balance, um, the more open you can become and the less fixed mindset you can become and it's just embracing that piece and being grateful on yeah. the other side of it for what you do That's have. That's really good. Thanks for that. Uh, we're getting to the end. These are, I have some quick hit questions for you. What are you curious about? I am curious about huh too many things but I'm trying to narrow it down to one uh, I think right now I'm curious if college and college athletics I guess is the only thing out there for people like I guess I'm just curious from you know my European background is what else would there be in America if, if college wasn't the only way I guess mm -hmm. I'm just curious about that what's something what other options do what's something have? you failed at Oof. Gosh, I actually failed a year of college one time. A whole year? Well, it was better to just gotcha. retake the year. I was in a bit of a car accident and kind of just lost track mm -hmm. of a few things. And okay. yeah, didn't know if it was for me and then decided, all right, I just need to do this. What do you wish all coaches knew about culture? That it starts and ends with love. Oof. So good. What do you wish all players knew about culture? That they are loved no matter what. What do you see as the next evolution of your culture at St. Lawrence? I see... Giving your favorite sweater to somebody needs it more than you. like your mom <laughs> yeah <laughs> something along okay, that these line. are fill in the blanks the first step in creating an intentional culture is to let your team know who you are outside of being just their coach the culture we are trying to create at st lawrence is Dynamic. We will know when we've created this culture when 
people smile more. Is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't? Yeah. Sinead, thank you so much for this. Thank you, I Matt. Really, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed for... learning more about St. Lawrence, and I wish you all the best in the upcoming season. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.